is the errors that get deep down in your code base that are the toughest to wash out. How? Use new fashion smashing with exclusive learning action. Bugs just float away with smashing. So help your family's code stay spotless with easy to use smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're taking a look back at 2020. Who did we speak to in our 25 episodes this year, and what did we learn? We'll listen back to some clips to find out. Yes, it's a Christmas clip show to tide you over the holidays. Our audience has grown a lot this year, so this is your chance to spot interviews from the archives that you may want to catch up on. And whilst we're busy preparing episodes for 2021, we're always keen to hear your feedback. Are there some episodes you enjoy more than others? Or particular people you think we should speak to? Let us know. You can email us at podcast at smashingmagazine.com or follow us at SmashingPod on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast this year, ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts are always welcome. So without further delay, let's dive in. If you hear something you like, you can find all our past episodes at podcast.smashingmagazine.com. In January, I talked to Amy Hoop about her work on the UK government's design system, and in particular, how the team increased adoption of the system by the wider organisation by encouraging contributions. Here's Amy. We started really early, so way before we had a kind of public design system, we started to engage with people who we thought kind of would be interested contributors. Um, I should mention here, uh, we had a a brilliant service designer on the team. She joined us in, um, you know, I'm not going to get the dates correct in any way at the moment, but I think... Uh, she worked with us in the whole of sort of 2018 um, and she, she, her name's Ignacia uh, and she just did a fantastic job of kind of going around and engaging people. So one of the things that she did was to go and identify um, all of the different patterns in government and all the different kind of variations of those patterns. Um, so going out and kind of saying, okay, there's, there's 10 different ways to ask for an address in government um let's look at them all together and decide which we think is the most appropriate approach um how can we consolidate these into one she ran a big workshop to try and get people kind of looking at those and um and doing that kind of consolidation as a team and i think definitely her approach to kind of building collaboration in um way before we actually released anything to the public really helped with that because it meant that people already had that kind of awareness of it and many people had already contributed to it in some fashion or another before we actually took it public so we were you know kind of put us a few steps ahead um so I think that was really important and um and just persistence like a lot of persistence from the whole team in in kind of helping people to contribute it's not um I think there's there's an idea that if you get people to contribute to a design system, that's that's a pretty sweet gig because you can just get people to do all the work for you and you kind of just sit there and you make your little code fixes and, and everybody's actually giving you all the good stuff. But actually, like, as anyone who's worked on a design system will know, like, it, it's incredibly complex. It's very difficult to make a centralised solution that works for multiple different teams. Um, and really, unless you've worked on a design system... 
it's not reasonable to expect anyone to really understand what that takes so there's a lot of kind of hand-holding there's a lot of work involved in supporting contributors to contribute it's not it probably I think I've said this before but it probably takes longer I think to help somebody to contribute to a design system than it would to just make the thing yourself in a centralized team um, but I think recognizing the value that it brings and being persistent in your efforts to make people aware of contribution help them to do it um help them to feel kind of motivated to do it uh i think yeah that that persistence was was really sort of key to our um our success in that area we were joined by microsoft's stephanie Steimack and aaron gustafsson to talk about edge adopting chromium as its rendering engine i asked aaron about the competitive landscape between browsers and whether multiple browsers coalescing on the same rendering engine would stamp out that healthy competition and therefore be bad for the open web this is something that I definitely have, you know, having been a, a longtime web standards person, kind of struggle a bit with. I don't think, like, I, I totally get the business justification for it from Microsoft standpoint. It made a lot of sense, and from a front end dev uh, perspective, it's nice to not have to, you know, cater to a bunch of different engines. I mean, on the whole. Uh, you know, those of us who've been working on the web for a long time have certainly seen a lot of convergence um, in terms of rendering. We don't have as many problems as we had, say, back in the, you know, Netscape 4.7 days where where we had just like, you know, I, I knew companies that were creating unique style sheets for each different browser, which was just, you know, un, untenable. Um, but uh, I think what's what's kind of different now is that Back in the original browser wars, you had all of these proprietary engines and everybody was kind of in a game of one-upsmanship uh, in terms of trying to ship new platform features and, and new JavaScript features, or in the case of Microsoft reverse engineering JavaScript in order to create JScript and, and trying to figure out how to fit it all together. Um, but now we have the ability to actually work together in open source projects and still have the the dialogue and still, I don't know, fight's not the right word, but to, to have like serious discussions about the impact of, of different approaches and to disagree with each other and um, to really work on making specs really good and, and to also have competing approaches to the underlying... Um, code within the context of, say, a Chromium project or WebKit or something of that nature or, or um, Mozilla in the, the Firefox space. Um, so yes, in, on one hand, we, are, we did lose another rendering engine, and I felt that same pain when Opera decided to go to Chromium. But I, do, I feel somewhat heartened being inside Microsoft and seeing how committed we are to actually participating in the Chromium project in a meaningful way. Um, and not just kind of sitting back and just accepting everything that comes downstream from Chromium, but actually kind of vetting what's going into the platform and participating in that. Um, yeah, that's, so I, I'm, I'm a little bit heartened by that um, and feel like, you know, we're not just there to, to take from that project and just accept whatever gets passed down by all of the different people who, who have a stake in that project, but to actually be um, collaborating in there as well. In February, I talked to Stephanie Walter about working with UI frameworks like Bootstrap and Friends and balancing that with the customized needs of a usable interface. 
I asked Stephanie if it was possible to create a highly usable UI whilst using an off-the-shelf framework, or if it was always going to be a bit of an awkward compromise. Yeah, I think it is, but it also depends on the level of compromise you're willing to do. And there's compromises on both sides. Like at the moment, I'm compromising a lot of uh, buttons, for instance, because you have like some really specific buttons in the material you are. And I don't really like the ripple effect on the button. I think it works great on mobile because on mobile, you need a, a kind of a big feedback when user clicks or touches the button. But on desktop, this kind of ripple effect that goes all the way on the button, it's a little bit overkill, especially when there's a lot of button. But still, we are going to keep this ripple effect because it would be super complex to remove it because this was built into the React framework. And to have another hover effect on this button, something more subtle that will not be this kind of whooshy thing here, it would be super complex. So this is the kind of compromises you do. Ethical design was the subject of my conversation with Trina Falber and Martin Michael Fredrickson. I asked if taking an ethical approach to design and avoiding dark patterns was a case of thinking long-term about the health and growth of a business rather than just the short-term sales goals. Here's Martin. Uh, I think that's perfectly true. I think you have to look at the business that you do online as if you had a store on the main street in a medium-sized city where you have to you know, keep your reputation intact. And if you, uh, if you don't treat your customers well, then long term, uh, if you don't treat your customers well, long term you'll run out of business because people they will go to some other store or they'll buy from online. So whatever you do online, you really have to think of that that there's a long-term effect and also there's a kind of a hidden um, there's a hidden uh, cost in doing things that are complex or things that manipulate and if you if you declutter as Trina says there will be a long-term saving and that's never calculated when you talk about business model you always talk about how much money you can make you never talk about the cost of making uh, that amount of money. In March, I talked to Eduardo Bosas about an open source tool called Sourcebit that gathers content from disparate sources and makes it available to your static site generator. I asked Eduardo if this could improve the user experience of authoring for an SSG by enabling integration with tools such as headless CMSs. Exactly, yeah. And the way that it could... Um, and I kind of see two uh, different ways of using the tool. Um that, that can help developers. One is um, making Sourcebit part of your deployment routine. So if you're using um, a, a hosting platform like, like Netlify, for example, uh, and you configure your deploy commands to be, um, um, I don't know, Hugo... Uh, Hugo Bill, is it the, the build command for Hugo or something? So, so the command that generates uh, the, the static uh, the static files for Hugo, you would also have another command as part of that routine um, that would be something like sourcebit fetch. And so at build time, sourcebit will go pull all, the, all your data, generate all the files that, that Hugo needs, and then uh, the, the, the whole deployment will, will already use those files and deploy all the content that is coming from the CMS. So that's kind of one, one possible 
um, use case for SourceBit. The other one is to use SourceBit as uh, as a local development uh, um, in, in a local development workflow. So you can you can run SourceBit with uh, something that we call the, the the watch mode, and so SourceBit keeps looking for changes in the remote data source, so in this case, headless CMS. And so whenever you publish an article or you, or you change an entry in the CMS, Sourcebit will, um, will acknowledge that and it will regenerate all the files uh, for you locally. And so what that means for, for a developer uh, working locally is that you can, you can have your, your uh, CMS window next to your uh, Jekyll or Hugo site um, running locally and then you can see changes happening in real time. You change something on the CMS, and then you can see the that change being reflected uh, on the on the local side, which I I find super useful. Um, so those are kind of the two ways that you could that you could use um, SourceBit. Conversion optimization was the topic of the day when I spoke to veteran podcaster and consultant Paul Boag. We talked about some of the techniques that sites use to convert visitors to customers, but I wanted to ask Paul how you measure the impact of the changes you make. Paul explained. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I think again, this is something that, that many organisations are quite poor at: is is being clear about um, how they're going to measure success. Now, yes, your conversion rate is one metric you should absolutely uh, be following. But even with conversion, you kind of need to be a little bit more sophisticated than how many people are buying. Um, you also need to pay attention to average order value. You need to pay, uh, pay particular attention to lifetime value, right? So how much a, a customer's worth over their entire life? Because you may well find that you're getting quite a high churn of customers if you're using dark patterns and things like that. But really, conversion should be just one of the metrics that you're measuring. There's also um, things like you need to be paying attention to engagement, how engaged are people with your with your content, because that that makes uh, a big difference in whether they eventually go on to convert. So you're looking at things like, you know, how much of your videos do they watch? You know, how long do they spend on your um, site and what are they looking at while they're doing it? Uh, are they engaging on social media and those kinds of things and then the final aspect is obviously usability that you need to be measuring how quickly someone can complete a, a particular task on their website and you know um, how easy they find the, the the system to use and various other different criteria and there are loads of mechanisms that you can use for measuring those different things there's some great tools out there um, and also some good like um uh, metrics, you know, that you can adopt. So, for example, with usability, there's something called the system usability scale, um, which can be a very useful uh, metric to measure. But equally, there are tools like maze.design is one that, that I often use, which will measure how long it's taking someone to make a purchase, for example, and get through the checkout. Um, so, so yeah, having that kind of broad range of metrics, so you're not just focusing on how many sales did we make this quarter. Um, you've got to look at the bigger picture. In April, I chatted to Laura Kalbag from BetterBlocker about online privacy. We talked about the ever-thinning borders between what is considered public and what's private and how the things we consider private might not be seen that way by the companies we entrust our data to. Here's Laura. And I have a classic example of this that happened to me a few years ago. So I was on Facebook 
And my mum had just died and I was getting ads for funeral directors. And I thought it was really strange because none of my family had said anything on a social media platform at that point. None of my family had said anything on Facebook because we'd agreed that no one wants to find out that kind of thing about a friend or a family member via Facebook. So we'd not say about it. And then, so I asked my siblings, oh, have any of you like said anything on Facebook that might cause this strange? Because I usually just get ads for makeup and dresses and pregnancy tests and all those fun things they like to target at women of a certain age. And in, instead, like my sister got back to me and she said, well, yeah, my friend lives in Australia. So I sent her a message on Messenger, Facebook Messenger, and told her that our mum had died. And of course, Facebook knew that we're sisters. It has that relationship connection that you can choose to add on there. I mean, it could probably guess we were sisters anyway by the locations we've been together, the fact that we share a surname. And decided, oh, that's an appropriate ad to put in her feed. It, it, it's sobering, isn't it, that to, to think that technology is making these decisions for us that actually affects um, people, uh, potentially, in this example, uh, 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 quite a sensitive or vulnerable time. Yeah, it's, it's, we say it's creepy, but um, and a lot of the time people say, oh, it's almost like the microphone on my phone or my laptop was listening to me because I was just having this conversation about this particular product and suddenly it's appearing in my feed everywhere. And I think what's actually scarier is the fact that most of them don't have access to your microphone. And but it's the fact that your other behaviours, your search, the fact that it knows who you're talking to because of your proximity to each other in your location on your devices. Uh, it can connect all of those things that we might not connect ourselves together in order to say, oh, maybe they'll be interested in this product because they were probably thinking talking about it already. As the coronavirus pandemic hit and many nations went into some form of lockdown, I spoke with Rachel Andrew about how Smashing was adapting its in-person conference schedule to happen online instead. Having just had to postpone Smashing Conf San Francisco, I asked Rachel what the plan was for moving upcoming conferences and workshops into the virtual domain. Very, very quickly, once we realised we were going to have to postpone San Francisco, uh, we ha obviously we have workshops, both myself and Vitaly run workshops at uh, Smashing Conf, and they were, they were sold out in San Francisco, both of our workshops. And Obviously, we have lots of other people who come and run workshops for us, uh, people who we've worked with for a long time, and and they were finding that all their workshops, and, and for those of us who do workshops, they're actually a key part of our income. Um, public speaking, you don't earn a lot of money typically going and, and public speaking. <laughs> Most people aren't paid a lot, not when you consider the amount of time it takes to write talks and so on. Workshops tend to be quite a nice way for people who are good at teaching this stuff to, to earn some money, and so they represent... Uh, you know, people's income. And so not only did, you know, myself and Vitaly had lost our workshops um, early this year, we also realised that a lot of our smashing speakers also, you know, were reliant on those workshops. And so we thought, well, why not just take them online? Um, and very, very quickly, really, within days of that happening, we had, we decided that me and Vitaly would kind of be the first to stick our heads over the parapet, given it's us. And, you know, we, we could sort of figure out how to do it. And so, and we also have very different workshops. Vitaly is much more kind of collaborative. He has, you know, group activities and things. I teach classroom style. So between us, we thought, well, we're kind of covering all the bases. 
So that was really, we thought, let, let's just do it. Let's see if it works. Um, so we, we advertised them. We sort of figured out how long they'd each take. And then we sort of sat down and said, well, what does an online workshop really look like? You know, what is this? I think from a technical perspective as, as web developers, we immediately think, how on earth are we going to deliver something like that? I mean, there must be lots of different platforms that you looked at. What were the different things you looked at and um, what smashing eventually gone with? So we've had a look at all sorts of things and we're still kind of in the process of doing that. We're using Zoom at the moment. And the reason we're using Zoom is accessibility. It was the most accessible of the platforms. Uh, obviously, we don't want to cut people out uh, because because of the platform we've chosen. And I think other platforms are getting better and people are care. I think that a lot of platforms have had people come to them and say, yeah, you look great, but, you know, we need you to be accessible. And so... So Zoom is, is the easiest for people to use at the moment. And so that's why we, we've ended up using them. I don't know whether we will do forever, um, but it, that's that's what we're using at the moment. And it's it's worked pretty well uh, as, as, as a way to do this stuff. As Zoom fatigue set in and the world started to adjust to what was quickly being called the new normal, I talked to Phil Smith about how technology can help us to respond to situations like COVID-19. Building the React Native app Cardmedic in just 10 days, I asked Phil how he goes about balancing picking the best technology for the job versus the technologies he's familiar with and can work rapidly in. That is a good question. I think as soon as it was the project was mentioned to me, I thought I know exactly how I'm going to build all of this. And if I didn't have kids and I sat in a dark room, I think I could have probably turned it all around in about five days if I'd have been working on it solid, solid, solid. Because the requirements were very much in line with my experience of building apps, of built similar kind of things where it kind of calls on an API, stores the results in, uh, in state and presents them. I'm now at a position where there's some bits where I'm like, okay, I need to go back and refactor that. Like uh, like I've spoke about typing, but actually the types can be quite loose in the app and that needs to be tightened up. And on the back end, there aren't many tests. And now we're starting to roll the back end out because lots of people have come forward and said, actually, this is a great resource. I'd like to volunteer my services to translate this into my native language. So the the back end's been used by more people. So I'm just thinking, hang on, I need a few more tests in here to make sure that nothing can break because there are people using this in production now. So it was really, I, I think that answers your question. Essentially, there was no decision making. I just had to get it out there as quickly as possible. As workplaces closed and many of us adapted to working at home, I spoke to Ben Frain about optimising your home workspace to be a comfortable and productive place that's not going to result in long-term physical health problems. With limited budgets available for getting set up at home, I asked Ben if a good chair was the best place to start. That would be my um, advice, yeah. I mean, I, I can't profess to be a, an authority on these things, but it seems like it, it's a sensible, it's probably the single most sort of uh, important thing you can do to make yourself comfortable throughout the day. You know, you can start with something fairly expensive. I made the same mistake and I ended up getting a £45 office chair from Amazon. And I didn't realise um, that it didn't have a kind of a tilt forward, whatever the right word for that thing is, um, on that axis. So what I found is it was digging into the underside of my um, thighs, sort of behind my knees. And I was thinking, why, why are my legs going dead? You know, after like 45 minutes of, of sitting in that thing. And 
you just don't, I think, particularly if you work for a company that provides decent office chairs, you just take them for granted. And you. it isn't until you look at that particular make and brand that you go, oh, my God, this is a $700 chair. Um, you know, and you realize that, crikey, people have thought about this and, and done a lot for you. And then, obviously, you come to your home environment and you think, well, I'm not spending X hundred dollars on a, a chair, you know, um, but maybe it is worth it, um, particularly if you're here for the long haul. And the long haul is what we got. Something else that's around for the long haul is Drupal. And in June, I spoke with Angie Byron about the changes in Drupal 9. 20 years since its first release, Drupal has come a long way. I asked Angie what the process of upgrading an existing Drupal site was like when moving to Drupal 9, and if it was likely to be a big burden for those with long-running sites. I think there's basically three scenarios. So one is if you were running Drupal 8, and every time a new minor release of Drupal 8 came out, you upgraded it to a right away, and you started making use of the new stuff, your path is going to be basically nothing. Like, you've already been doing all the work, and you're fine. If you move to Drupal 8 a while back, and you haven't been keeping up with the BC changes, there is a little bit of work for you. It's definitely the easiest upgrade in over a decade of our software anyway. Um, And we have a ton of different tools to help you with it. There's a dashboard that shows all of the contributed modules and what their Drupal 9 situation is. There's automated tools for going through and checking your code and flagging any deprecated uh, functions that you have. Um, And there's tools for automatically, you know, going up and finding, oh, this is the latest version of your module and it's Drupal 9 ready. You should go download it, that kind of stuff. Um, So from Drupal 8 to 9, I would say that that part's pretty well covered. If you're coming from a prior version of Drupal, say Drupal 7 or below to Drupal 9, that does start to look a little bit trickier. Like among the changes that we made in Drupal 8 were, for example, we moved entirely to object-oriented PHP and we started utilizing design patterns that were found in other software projects, which is a really smart thing to do architecturally. But it does mean that if you had a ton of custom code in your old life, that in Drupal 8, you're going to, or in Drupal 9, you're going to need to find alternatives for that. So um, Acquia is a product in development uh, called Acquia Migration Accelerator, uh, which is aiming to solve that problem where we're creating like a nice, you know, reactified application, which reads in your old Drupal 7 data, uh, creates equivalent Drupal 8 data for you, along with all the modules that you're going to need that map to your old Drupal 7 modules where possible um, to try and expedite that process quite a bit. Um, Because we want to make sure that everybody who's on older versions can still make it over to the new new world order where everyone's on the same version and we're all working together, you know. Um, And then in addition, we've also extended the Drupal 7... um, the, the community, like the open source community of Drupal, uh, has their, their end of life in Drupal 7 as of November of next year. Currently, anyway, we need to discuss whether COVID impacts that or not. Um, but uh, but the there's a number of different companies, and Acquia is one of them, that offers uh, extended support for, for uh, Drupal 7 beyond that. So to 2024, at least. Um, and so that, 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 you know, kind of sort of makes it so that people who have an easy upgrade have a year and a half to get it done. People who have a less easy upgrade have potentially like three and a half years to get it done or longer if they need to, um, you know, it, and we're trying really hard to make it possible for everybody to move over and then building tools like Aquium Migrate Accelerator to, to help, you know, speed up the process. Learning React was the subject of a conversation with Mina Markham. Mina and I had both been in a position of learning React for the first time. And reflecting on how much burden frameworks like React put on the browser, I asked Mina if putting so much control in the hands of the client was a mistake. I want to say yes, (laughs) with the caveat of, again, my experience is very much contained to static, to mostly static websites. I don't do a lot of product development. So 
maybe in that realm, this makes more sense. But from my perspective, I feel like we're a lot of the times using a hatchet when we just, you know, need a butter knife. Like, I don't know why we need all of this, like all of this, put all of this in the browser, put so much work and so much pressure on the client when we can do things much, I feel like we do things much simpler. Um, one of the things that I, that always made me a little hesitant to use React or not, I say hesitant, but what I mean when it made me viscerally angry and I like actively opposed it was when I would go to a website and literally like nothing would render because there was one console, there was one error or something like really the entire page is broken because one function broke down. Like it just kind of annoyed me that a lot of the times it was an all or nothing approach. Um, I, one of the talks that you had, um, that I gave at uh, AEA in the past and other places in the past was sort of talking about how to include progressive enhancement in not just your development, but also in larger of art direction and design of sites. And I would point out specifically examples of websites that did that didn't do progressive enhancement or any kind of graceful degradation. It was like either you have JavaScript and running in the browser or you get absolutely nothing. And it would be just like, a simple site that would present information about like the history of web design, which is one of the sites I actually talked about, the history of web design um, from like 1990 until now. It was a beautiful website with like lots of timelines, animation and things, but it also could have been rendered statically with just a list. Like there were, there were steps in between showing nothing and showing that beautifully enhanced experience that I think got lost because of the way we've been approaching modern web development now. I talked to Andy Bell about Cube CSS, a styling methodology in the manner of BEM, SMAX, and OOCSS. Whilst many CSS approaches try to work against the natural properties of CSS, like the cascade, Cube very much embraces that behaviour. Here's Andy. It's a, good, a good sort of analogy for it is SCSS, like SAS, is a... It's an extension of the natural CSS language, isn't it? It's, you're pretty much writing CSS still. So Cube CSS is like that, but so it's an extension of CSS. So we should still write CSS as CSS should. Well, it's supposed to be written, and let's be honest, that's how it's supposed to be written. Is like the the name gives it away, cascading style sheets. The so it's embracing that again because what I found is that. I've gone all the way down to the micro-optimization level. You know, I've been down the path that I see a lot of people going down recently where, and I mentioned this in the article as well, where I can see um, there's some evidence of it recently. I've spotted people have been creating like spacer components and stuff like that, and I understand that problem. I've been in that situation. The way I fixed it was instead of drilling down and trying to micro-optimize, I actually started thinking about things on a compositional level instead because it doesn't matter how small your components are, at some point they're going to be pages, they're going to be views. You cannot avoid that. That's how it's going to be. So instead of trying to say, right, if this, I need these tiny little helpers to do this layout, you say, right, I've got a, a contact page view or a product page view, and that's a skeletal layout composition and then inside of that i can slot whatever components i want in there all i know and we've got things like grid and flexbox now which make that 
much more achievable um, and you can essentially put whatever you want inside of the skeletal layout it doesn't matter and then um, the components should at that point behave how you want them to behave with or without container queries. Gatsby was the subject of my chat with Marcy Sutton. Whilst most static site generators are front-end code agnostic, Gatsby uses React and therefore you end up with Gatsby code running as part of your final web experience. I asked Marcy what that code was and what functionality it was providing. Yes, I'd say the biggest piece of that is client-side routing. So Gatsby right now is using Reach Router under the hood. It does kind of its own implementation. But that is the piece that when you load your static site for the first time, um, there are HTML files there. So if the user turns JavaScript off for some reason, uh, your site should still be there, still have content. But if JavaScript is enabled, that's when this hydration step happens, where when you use links in your Gatsby site, it will go prefetch resources from that page so it will load faster. So that is all enabled with this JavaScript layer that Gatsby gives you. And so beyond that, it really depends kind of what you're using in your site, what will end up in that JavaScript bundle. But for things that use a lot of interactivity, like accessible accessible interfaces, that's a good place to be um, for me. Um, I really enjoy having... JavaScript available to me at all times and having my markup just be in a good spot. Um, I know it's a matter of preference whether you want your your HTML and your JavaScript and your CSS all kind of neatly coupled. And um, there's room for variations within building Gatsby. You don't always have to use something like CSS and JS. But it's really about getting the power of that dynamic JavaScript layer available to you while you're writing your website. It's not like this add-on in a separate file. When I think of how a static uh, site generator usually works, I'm thinking of content in perhaps markdown files. And the generator runs across that content and merges it with templates and creates tens, hundreds, thousands of HTML files, which are the pages of your website. Um, when I think of a, a React site or, or app, I'm thinking more about a single page experience where the interface has been created by uh, React on the fly. So Gatsby sort of, does, you're saying Gatsby does both of those? Um, it's creating all the pages and also enhancing it with JavaScript? It is, yes. Gatsby will use Node.js at build time. It will go over your React components and compile them into HTML files which honestly, the first time I looked at Gatsby, I, I went and turned JavaScript off and was like, all right, are there are there pages here? What is this? And I was so happy that Gatsby works that way by default. It will create built files from your React components, which is awesome. I have explored more progressive enhancement approaches since it's in JavaScript. Like, what if you want to output something, you know, progressively enhanced for users, where if they do have JavaScript turned off, you don't want all this broken code that assumes JavaScript is there. So there are some quirks with it, but it's you can work around that kind of thing, um, at least for your core user flows where, you know, you want someone to still be able to buy something. You might need to add some support in for those use cases, but... I've been pleasantly surprised at the way that Gatsby rolls that out by default. And so it is, you know, a choice that they they made to build sites that way. And we're always evaluating, is this still the best way? You know, what 
what do we need to do to uh, give our users what they're asking for? And so we're doing some explorations internally, um, you know, ongoing just to make sure Gatsby is doing the best job it can at building a website. So keeping bundle sizes small and making sure that if we're making trade-offs for what we say is performant uh, code, you know, with prefetching, like, do we have the data to back that up? That's the kind of thing as a developer advocate that I'm super interested in is making sure that what we're packaging and bundling on websites is actually needed and will really make a, the best Gatsby site it can make. Talking with Christopher Danandi in July, I asked if modern best practices were bad for the web. Chris backs a movement known as the Lean Web, and I asked him what that entailed. Here's Chris. When I look at the way we build for the web today, um, it feels a little bit like a bloated, over-engineered mess. And I've come to believe that a lot of what we think of as best practices today might actually be making the web worse. And the Lean Web is um, an approach to web development that is focused on um, simplicity, on performance, and the developer experience over um, I'm sorry, not the developer experience, the user experience, rather, over um, the developer experience and the ease of building things from a team perspective, which is, I think, where we put a lot of focus today. Um, and as we'll probably get into in our conversation, I've actually come to find that a lot of these things we think of as improving the developer experience do so for a subset of developers, but not necessarily everybody who's working on the thing you're building. And so there's a whole bunch of kind of issues with that too that we can we can kind of dig into but really the lean web is about focusing on simplicity and performance for the user and really prioritizing or putting the focus on the people who use the things we make um, rather than us the people who are making it in august chris coyer joined us to talk about all things serverless i asked him what sort of tasks they were putting serverless to over at CodePen? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. One of them is, is I think, hopefully fairly obvious is like, I need, let's, the point of CodePen is that you write HTML, CSS, and JavaScript in the browser, and it renders in front of you, right? But you can pick preprocessor languages as well. Like, let's say you like SAS, you turn SAS on in the CSS, and you write SAS. Well, something has to process the SAS. These days, SAS is written in Dart or something. You Theoretically, you could do that in the client. But these libraries that do preprocessing are pretty big. I don't think I want to ship the entire SAS library to you just to run that thing. I don't, I don't want to. It's just not, that's not the right architecture for this necessarily. Maybe it is down the road. I mean, we could talk about offline crap, yada, yada, web workers. There's a million architectural things we could do. But here's how it does work now is there's a Lambda. It processes SAS. It has one tiny, tiny, tiny little job. You send it this blob of SAS and it sends you stuff back, which is the process CSS, maybe a sitemap, whatever, you know, it has one tiny little job and we probably pay for that Lambda like four cents or something. Cause like Lambdas are just incredibly cheap, you know, and you can hammer it too. You don't have to worry about scale. You just hit that thing as much as you want and your bill will be astonishingly cheap. You know, there are, there is moments where serverless starts to cross that line of being too expensive. I don't know what that is. I'm not that master of stuff like that, but generally any serverless stuff we do, we basically <laughs> nearly count as free because it's it's that cheap. But there's one for SAS, there's one for less, there's one for Babel, there's one for TypeScript, there's one for, you know, there's all the, all those are individual lambdas that we run. Here's some code, give it to the lambda, it comes back and we do, do whatever we're going to do with it. But we use it for a lot more than that, even recently. Um, 
here's an example. Like we, um, every single pen on Copen has a screenshot, you know, that's kind of cool. Right. So you, you hit the people make a thing and then, uh, we need like a PNG or a JPEG or something of it so that we can, that way, when you tweet it, you get the little preview of it. If you share it in Slack, you get the little preview of it. If you, we use it on the website itself to render, um, instead of an iframe, if we could detect that the pen isn't animated, because an iframe is heavy and an image is much lighter. So why not use the image? It's not animated anyway, you know, just performance gains like that. So each of those screenshots has a URL to it, obviously, you know, and we've architected it so that that URL is actually a serverless function. It's a worker. And so (laughs) if that URL gets hit, we can really quickly check if we've already taken that screenshot or not. That's actually enabled by Cloudflare workers because Cloudflare workers are not just a serverless function, but they have a data store too. They have this thing called key value store. So you can, the ID of that, we can just check really quick and it'll be true or false. Do you have it or not? If it's got it, it serves it and it serves it over Cloudflare, which is super fast to begin with. And then gives you all this ability too, because because it's an image CDN, you can say, well, serve it in the optimal format, serve it at these dimensions. And I don't have to make the image in those dimensions. You just put the dimensions in the URL and it comes back as that size magically. I talked to Next.js co-creator Guillermo Rausch about the features on offer in Next.js and asked about its automated code splitting functionality. As the size of our JavaScript bundles can have quite an impact on performance, I was interested to know if Next had ways to tackle that. Yeah, your observation is 100% right. So one of the biggest things with the web and and one of the biggest like weights on the web is JavaScript. And just like different uh, materials have different densities and and weights, irrespective of the actual physical volume, JavaScript tends to be a very dense, heavy element. And uh, even small amounts of JavaScript compared to, like, for example, images that can be processed asynchronously and off the main thread, JavaScript tends to be particularly bothersome. So Next.js has invested a tremendous amount of effort into automatically optimizing your bundles. So the first one that was kind of my first intuition when I first sort of came up with the idea for Next.js was, okay, you're going to define, for example, 10 routes. In the Next.js world, you create a pages directory and you drop your files in there, index.js, about.js, settings.js, dashboard.js, terms of service.js, you know, signup.js, login.js. Those become entry points to your application that you can share through all kinds of media. When you enter those, we want to give you JS that is relevant for that page first and foremost, and then perhaps a common bundle so that subsequent navigations within the system are very snappy. Next.js also, which is very, very nice, automatically prefetches the rest of the pages that are connected to that entry point such that it feels like a single page application. So a lot of people say like, why don't you just create React app if I know that I have maybe a couple routes? And I always tell them, well, look, you can define those as pages and because Next.js will automatically prefetch once they are connected, you end up getting your single page application, but it's better optimized with regards to that initial paint that initial entry point. In September, I had the pleasure of talking to Cassie Evans about SVG animation. We talked about the approachability of SVG for developers who are already familiar with HTML. Here's Cassie. 
I, I think that that's what I love the most about SVG is I'm I'm really into creative coding um, and also teaching people. And I've found that teaching people um, who are m- more of a creative leaning, um, they sometimes get a little thrown off when you immediately jump in with, you know, JavaScript or Python or something like that for creative coding. Um, but without fail, I've managed to get anyone that I taught on board with SVG because it's got this um, really approachable entry point because it does look like HTML. So you can give someone with a with an understanding of HTML and how to build websites SVG, and it looks the same, but it's for graphics instead of documents. Um, and then you can animate that with CSS to start off with, which is also a little bit more comfortable. And then you can kind of progress to animating it with JavaScript. So it's a really good um, learning curve. And of course, it can be dynamic. It's not just a case of creating motion. You can actually, you know, make the, the properties of it dynamic. So like one of the interesting things I've seen SVG used for, uh, and it's a grand term, but like data visualization, data viz, and, you know, drawing graphs and charts and, of course, things like dashboards that we seem to have everywhere these days. SVG is sort of perfect for that, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, SVG is great for data viz, um, all the way from kind of small data viz up to like D3, which is very well known um, Dataverse library that uses SVG under the hood. Um, but you could also just, if you've got a little bit of data that you wanted to show on a web page, you could create a chart in a graphics editing program. And then you could just use JavaScript to change those values and kind of change how your graph looks. So you don't have to go all in with a massive Dataverse library. You can kind of just start off small. The Jamstack framework Redwood JS was the topic of conversation with Anthony Campolo. I asked Anthony what it meant to be a full-stack Jamstack framework in practical terms. Yeah, it's pushing the boundaries of what a Jamstack application can be. So by calling it full-stack Jamstack, it's about how do we go beyond just the front end to having the same sort of like deployment paradigm of just get push, getting your whole code deployed. How do we get that, but also with our back end and have it all connected? Vue.js version 3 was released in October. And I caught up with Natalia Tepluhina from the Vue core team. Discussing the new version, I was curious if the major version bump was just a result of a few backward incompatible modifications, or if this was a very clear revisiting of Vue to make deeper changes to the framework. No, I think it was an idea to create a new version due to a few very important things. So first of all, there was a motivation to change the reactivity. Previous one was built upon object-defined property, and it had a few caveats. They're all documented, but still, you know, even if you document something that people shouldn't do, they will do it anyway, and you would need to point them to documentation. Nobody reads documentation, by the way. For some reason, it just it just <laughs> happens. Until you point people out, like, it doesn't exist in docs, it does. But okay, <laughs> we will teach you anyway. <laughs> so reactivity was one of the things. Performance was the next. View still... Vue 2 still had and has not the worst performance, but we had a few ideas about how to make Vue faster. And also there was one pain point for a particular part of our, let's say, audience, people that use Vue, it was TypeScript. Vue 2 internally was written in Flow, which is still strongly typed one, but typings with TypeScript were a real nightmare, especially if you were working with 
our state management Vuex. So this was again a huge part. And the last one was we kind of missed the functionality to abstract logic in terms of not components, but composable logic parts, like functions, helpers, and so on. But they should be able to include view reactivity as well. A nice example here could be React hooks, right? They allow you to abstract a part of the functionality. And this was clearly missing in view. And I know that right now it sounds like you stole the feature from React. Not in fact. I believe that ideas cross-pollination is a big and nice part in our ecosystem. And also it helps developers to switch between frameworks, right? So we were working on these main features to create a Vue 3 as a major, major version. Following that, we dived into TypeScript with Stefan Baumgartner to find out how it can help us write better code with fewer bugs. Observing the trend for organizations to move their code bases entirely to JavaScript, I asked Stefan if TypeScript was something larger teams would benefit from more than individuals. So, so I'm I'm currently in the same transition. <laughs> so we have lots of, of of Java and C plus plus developers who are going to write a lot of JavaScript in the future. Um, and you know, um, TypeScript can be some some sort of guide for those. Uh, um, scary areas of a new programming language. Uh, JavaScript has uh, a lot of quirks, uh, a lot of history and a lot of prejudices if, if you come from, from a different programming language. To it. So TypeScript can be a guide because there are some concepts that you're familiar with it in the type system. Um, but also I think especially when you have lots of people working in the same code base or lots of people who need to work with each other, um, this can be an additional layer of, of, of guidance in your project where you don't have any bad surprises in the end. So, um, of course, technology doesn't doesn't solve any communication problems. This this is not not what TypeScript is intended for, but it can it can lower uh, or it can it can make a lot more room for the right discussions. Then, if you don't have to 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 talk about what do you expect from me in your code, but rather what should your code do or what should your library do, um, and I always say that if, if you ever write code for other people or if you if you write code with lots of people or if you just write code for yourself that you have to revisit the next day, consider TypeScript because it might help you in the long run. And this is not just an investment for, you know, the, the next project of the next week, but more for one where I say, okay, especially if you have long-lasting projects for a month, two, or years, definitely go for that. You, you never, you're never going to know what you've been thinking of when you wrote that little piece of code one year ago. Uh, but types can give you a hint of what you meant. In November, I chatted with David Darns about the static site generator Eleventy. We talked about templating and how many static site generators are quite heavily opinionated about what type of templating you should use. I wondered if Eleventy held the same sort of strong beliefs. Here's Dave. No, I have to say it's it's very... It's it's as close as unopinionated as you could get. It, 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 a bit of a personal view, but I, I struggle to see any framework or anything that can be unopinionated because somebody, in order to create something, you have to have an opinion on how you want to do something. <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoron, but I'm, I'm sure people could correct me on that. Um, but yes, yeah, you can kind of, you can 
switch to whatever templating language you feel most comfortable with. I mean, we were just talking about uh, languages that you are comfortable with. Um, Eleventy appeals to that in 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 a sort of sense with what templating languages you use inside you, your HTML or heck even your CSS if you want. And for me, I, I just switch straight to the nunjucks because nunjucks is the default templating language inside of Eleventy, and that means I can use the .html extension and kind of leave it as it is. Now, I'm just going to confuse people even more and say you you can kind of name that however you want anyway. <laughs> you can have real fun with it. Um, but you can use handlebars. Um, I think you can just use like regular like JavaScript templating and iterate through it like that. Um, handlebars quite popular. Um, Liquid as well. Um, I, I can't think of all of them off the top of my head, but um, if you set it all up in the, in the configuration you can just pick however you want it i i'd say i'm a real big fan of just templating languages in general um it wasn't too long ago when i found out that you could use twig inside of wordpress and that kind of blew my mind i was like oh thank goodness i don't have to handle the for loop inside of php again i can some, something a little bit more comfortable and understandable to my you know more readable as well so um yeah 11t has lots of different templating options and uh, it, it should appeal to people who are comfortable with those different ones I spoke with Leslie Conewine about how Netlify uses its own platform to build Netlify and how their own deploy preview functionality becomes an effective staging platform for front-end changes. Maybe my favorite point, part of that whole process uh, is the magic of deploy previews, which we get through Netlify. So what happens is you'll, you know, you're, we're working in GitHub, you push up your PR. Um, so you open up your, your PR in GitHub and that is going to automatically create a build of your deploy preview of the app. Uh, so we actually use uh, deploy previews of the app itself um, to test out, to make sure everything is working the way it should. We run our tests. Um, you know, that's what we use sort of to, to manually verify uh, during code review. Um, so we have sort of all of that continuous deployment set up right from GitHub. Uh, and then uh, one of the other cool things that we, we have set up is that we actually have a couple of different Netlify sites that are pulling from the same repository where our app lives. So uh, we have both our app. We've got an instance of Storybook that has sort of our uh, UI components for the app. Um, so we have both our app itself. We've got the Storybook uh, UI components. And we have basically a Netlify site that shows our Storybook UI. Um, and then we also have a third site that runs a Webpack Bundle Analyzer. So it's sort of a visual UI it gives you a tree map visualization of all of the app's bundles and we can sort of gauge their size. And it's sort of just a reminder for us uh, to double check sort of as uh, every deploy of the app goes out, we can sort of check and make sure we're not um, doing anything weird with our, our bundle size there. So um, all three of those sites get generated uh, in one pull request of the app. Uh, so you'll get links to preview uh, your deploy previews, essentially, of both the app storybook and that app profile for us to check through. In December, I talked with Chris Murphy about product design and what it means for a business to be design focused. We discussed if an individual founder is design focused, does that leak into the business? And if a product is naturally an extension of the person who created it? I think it's a really good question, Drew. And I think that the answer to it is it depends. Um, I think it depends on that person and it depends on the scale of the company. If, if you take a look at Hyatt Denim, 
And I use Hyatt a lot in my in my teaching. It's a really good example of a company that's doing one thing well, and that's their sort of strap line jeans. I think if you look at David's previous, David and Claire, because they're a partnership. If you look at David Hyatt and Claire Hyatt's previous company, which was Howie's, that company had grown so big. There were so many people involved. Once scale starts to creep in, it starts to become very difficult to to keep an eye on all of the little touch points that matter in the customer journey. And I think it's really telling that when they left Howie's, because Howie's had been bought by Tim, the, it's complicated, go read it on the internet, but you know, it's Timberland and Timberland was bought and it's all this uh, story. I think it's really interesting that what they're focused on now is jeans. That's it. You know, they're telling an amazingly good story around jeans and they're also packaging everything really, really well. And this, the jeans are like a vehicle for stories, really. Um, you know, and also the jeans are, and this is something I think Drew is going to become more important as we come out the other end of COVID, which I hope we come out the other end of. Um, everyone who's making those jeans is being paid a proper wage. And one of the problems I have at the minute when I look at the world is not everybody is being paid a proper wage. And I find that a little bit concerning as, you know, as someone, look, I'm, I'm 51. Uh, my son is 25, uh, 24, 25, something like that. It's terrible. I should know all this stuff. Um, he's a wedding photographer. Uh, he has been a wedding photographer for um, like a year and a bit. His business is completely decimated because no one's really getting married at the minute because it's it's just difficult. And he's not he has no salary because he didn't have enough uh, self-employed books to get the support. Uh, he's fallen through the cracks. And there's a lot of other people who've fallen through the cracks. I would argue that's a design problem, you know, that we need to look at that as a design problem. But if I also look at that wider issue of COVID and the government and all of these things without getting too political... I read an article in The Guardian yesterday about Matt Hancock's neighbour. And anyone who's listening who's not from the UK, Matt Hancock is the health secretary. And his neighbour, who was running a business, was, uh, you know, texting him and asking for advice about, you know, how do I supply products for this COVID thing? And there's an awful lot of rumblings around the chumocracy is what the papers call it. You know, uh, friends of friends of government ministers who seem to be getting jobs because they know the right people. And I get this sense that we're going to come to the other end of this and see this, you know, individuals see that and they think, well, where's this money going? And, you know, are people being paid properly? And what's the price of this one pound T-shirt from Shop X? I don't want to mention any brands, um, but, you know, everything has to be paid for and everything that's made has to be uh, people have to be paid to make it. And I think people are increasingly interested in what are people, you know, are people being paid fairly? GraphQL was the topic of our final full episode of the year, and I had a chat with Eve Porcello and asked where GraphQL fits into the development stack. Yeah, GraphQL kind of fits between the front end and the back end. So it's kind of living in the middle between the two and gives a lot of benefits to front end developers and back end developers. Um, if you're a front end developer, you can define all of your front end's uh, data requirements. So if you have a big list of React components, for example, you could write a query and that's going to define 
all of the fields that you would need to populate the data for that page. Now with uh, the backend piece, it's really all because we can collect a lot of data from a lot of different sources. So we have data in REST APIs and databases and all these different places. And GraphQL provides us this nice little orchestration layer to really um, make sense of the chaos of where all of our data is. So it's uh, really useful for kind of everybody all over the stack. This is Smashing. And that was our holiday episode. If you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh,